And welcome to Talk to Talk. I am Buzz Eisenberg, and Bill Newman is uh, off today. Um, so I guess what happens often in newscasts, uh, we are doing a fish wrap today. A fish wrap is today's uh, news, is tomorrow's fish wrap. Uh, often the news begins with uh, sports scores. So I'm going to tell you some sports scores. I'm going to tell you that it was yesterday, last night, it was Boston lost 9-3, to the Yankees won 7-1, to and democracy won two to nothing. Um, it won two to nothing, first of all, in Ohio, which is often described as uh, one of those battleground states that uh, we're not quite sure whether it's red or blue or somewhere in between. Well, in what proved to be an enormous turnout, enormous turnout for a special election, yesterday Ohio voters rejected what's called their issue one which uh, could have had a major impact on whether the right to abortion, the right to reproductive rights, um, uh, becomes enshrined in the state constitution later this fall when there's a plebiscite to determine exactly that. This measure, which was defeated, uh, uh, poll after poll after poll, and we all have to look with one eye, eyebrow raised when we hear polls, but one, a number of polls indicated that the voters in Ohio are in favor of recognition of reproductive rights and uh, lean in great numbers. Some say almost to the point of 67% on averaging those polls together in favor of uh, not criminalizing abortion and allowing women to choose. Um, faced with those kinds of numbers, the Republican-led uh, legislature, the, what's called the, the General Assembly there in Ohio, decided, well, if we uh, actually try to meet the issue head-on, we're going to lose, according to these polls, so why don't we do this? Since there's a plebiscite in November that is planned, that's going to be on the ballot about making abortion rights concrete as a constitutional amendment that cannot be legislated out by the legislature, we can't, we're going to lose. So instead, what they decided to do is find another issue, which is how do you amend the Constitution in Ohio? And uh, right now, an amendment only requires a simple majority, 50.1% would take care of that amendment passing, and all the polls indicated that it would, in fact, pass, and the right to an abortion would be codified in the Constitution. So instead, they said, why don't we raise the quantum required to amend the Constitution to 60%, That we can articulate a justification for. Constitution shouldn't be easily amended. And that way we will win when we have an election on August 8th and determine whether or not, through a special election, we should raise the quantum required. Guess what? Not only did Ohio voters say no to that, they wanted to remain a simple majority to amend the Constitution, but they came out in numbers that were literally unprecedented. I think it was 40% more than the 20... 22 uh, midterm elections. So they they came out in droves and said, no, we want to be able to amend our Constitution as we see fit. And by all appearances, the way they see fit is to concretize the right to an abortion constitutionally rather than just by legislation. So democracy won a big one. That is, when I say democracy won a big one, the right of the people to determine what their Constitution says, the right of the people to determine what abortion rights uh, should be, uh, they won out yesterday, so we should all celebrate. Um, Dan, any comments on that? 
No, that that sounds about right. I mean, they they lost in Ohio, but they also lost in Kansas and in other states as well. So I think the Republicans don't realize that this policy is not as popular as they think it is. And and they're getting uh, people to turn out for Democrats to vote against it, even maybe some moderate Republicans voting against this kind of sort of naked power play yeah. by the Republican Party. I will vote just to bring it down to a more competitive level. I remember in early mid-2000s when I was going through college that a lot of states voted against gay marriage all throughout the country in these sort of referendums. And then about eight years later, 10 years later, well, comes the law of the land. 2004, Massachusetts passed. Uh, yeah. Uh, but Maine and other states all throughout the country had this sort of uh, plebiscites against gay marriage. And, and But then, you know, eventually it became the law of the land in, what, 2015 now? I forget, right? right? So right. I, I worry, like, yes, you, it might not be the popular view, but sometimes it can shift. And I think they're taking the long road strategy, if I had to guess from a political standpoint, that they say, yeah, we might be losing these, but, you know, we might be losing the, the battles, but not the war. And they're kind of thinking long-term well, how else they can undermine. The Supreme Court undid the beauty that was Roe v. Wade. Um, you know, but, but even the insulated Supreme Court, which, you know, it shields itself, it insulates itself against public, uh, uh, positions on yeah. important issues. Nevertheless, it has to notice it's, as you said, state after state. I mean, Kansas state is after an state. eye-opener. Yeah. Ohio is an eye-opener that people really are passionate. And it seems like about 70% nationally are in favor right. of uh, protecting and, reproductive and, rights. And the scary part about this one is Ohio tends to be a more conservative state in recent years, at least according to the polls. It tends to be no longer this purple state, but it's leaning more red. So if that's happening in a state like that, imagine the states that are, are a lot more competitive right. um, where people are leaning in. I don't think they realize it, but I think this large part of Republicans don't care. They want to sort of this minority rule over the majority of view yeah, that like, you and I have discussed. Thus, democracy won this skirmish yesterday. The other one, I don't want to talk too much about the other one, just like um, very briefly, uh, the New York Times through an article by Rick Hassan, which was published yesterday. Um, his headline is, quote, previously secret memo laid out strategy for Trump to overturn Biden's win. And for those who haven't read it, it's, um, there was a secret memo apparently from December 6th 2020, uh, by way of disclosure, I didn't read the memo, but I read the articles, two articles about it. Um, this 2020, this December 6th memo uh, demonstrated that attorney and unindicted co-conspirator Kenneth Chesabro proposed what he called, quote, a bold, controversial strategy that the Supreme Court would, quote, likely reject in the end because it's unlawful. That memo that he laid out in December said that even if the plan isn't lawful, it would at least focus the nation's attention on Trump's claims that there was voter fraud resulting in Biden's election. And two, it would buy the Trump campaign more time to either win litigation or win over states' legislatures so that uh, the Electoral College balance would shift to Trump from Biden. So what they did is they created these fake electors, a, a false slate of fake electors who said, we are the electors from our state. And of course, the Constitution leaves it to 
each state to come up with its um, electors in the manner that it sees fit. And um, then on January 6th, the memo goes on, Vice President Mike Pence can unilaterally count those fake slates of votes rather than the official and certified ones for Joe Biden. As we know, 130 Republican Congress people in the House voted, approved that, voted not to certify the actual electors and instead to go on with this. Well, this memo might be the sort of missing link that allows uh, Jack Smith, the special counsel, and his team of prosecutors to prove. Because this, the plot that's laid out in this, Demi- this January, I mean, December 6th memo, ultimately becomes a criminal conspiracy. And you can see it over the course of this memo. So when I, where I began was Democracy 2 last night and uh, uh, fascism, nothing. And uh, I'm really, it's something I'm really glad to report on. Meanwhile, we have a very special guest here. We have uh, uh, Thomas Wartenberg is here in studio. He is a professor emeritus of philosophy of 30 years at Mount Holyoke. He's the author of over 15 books, and he has just uh, uh, written and published uh, a book called Thoughtful Images, Illustrating Philosophy Through Art. I'm trying to wrap my brains, the epistemology (laughs) and other philosophically important words I, I hope will flow as we talk to uh, Professor Wartenberg. Thomas, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me, Bose. So this book, um, this is a really interesting thing. Through art, we are, uh, we are going to understand more about philosophy. How's that come, come about? Uh, actually, it's a sort of interesting uh, sort of journey that took me to writing this book. Uh, It actually began when I was writing a book on the philosophy of film, and I noticed uh, in this debate about whether films can do philosophy or not that both sides in the debate assumed that if a film illustrated philosophy, which they always qualified by saying merely illustrated philosophy, that didn't count as actually doing philosophy, so it was irrelevant to the debate. And I thought, well, nobody's actually investigated this assumption. And so I started looking into that. And in order to do that, I actually uh, tried to find more articles by philosophers or art historians or actually anyone about the notion of illustration. And what I discovered, there was actually very little written about illustration in the sort of theoretical sense of what makes something an illustration. There's plenty of practical guides for people who want to be illustrators uh, about how to do it. And there are programs that teach people how to make illustrations. But the concept of illustration itself, which you think philosophers, particularly philosophers of art, would have worried about, receives very little treatment. So I did write a chapter in that book um, about... uh, The philosophy of... Film. The philosophy of film, yeah, uh, how, how uh, films can illustrate philosophy. And then through a sort of circuitous path, I got um, to the point where I really wanted to uh, write about illustrations of philosophy more generally. And one of the particular steps uh, in this process occurred when I was uh, teaching a course at Mount Holyoke together with Barry Moser, who's the mm-hmm. well-known uh, book illustrator. And... 
Barry was always sort of asking the students to look at books that he had illustrated and the notion of the illustrations. And I started wondering, well, are there actually philosophy books that had been illustrated? Well, and I have I, to stop you right there, uh, Thomas Wartenberg, um, because I, need, I think I need a definition of philosophy. So hearkening <laughs> back to 100 years ago when I was a college student, I remember that the actual term means love of wisdom. Yeah, philosophy. And it, it's trying to understand the fundamentals of ourselves, our relationship to the world in which we live, our relationship to each other, right? What is your definition of philosophy? And I ask that so that if we're going to use art as a vehicle to understand it, what are we trying to understand? I think what you're saying is right. I mean, philosophy is that sort of, I mean, I guess now academic discipline, but it's more than that, which asks the really big questions about what it is to be a human being and what purpose, if any, our lives can serve on the planet. And so one of the things I think that's really important and has motivated a lot of my work is to really counter the idea that philosophy is a sort of narrow academic uh, specialty and to sort of show that philosophy arises in all sorts of different contexts in our lives and that people in general are interested in philosophy if only they would get over uh, what I'm now starting to call uh, philosophobia, the fear <laughs> of philosophy. Um, you know, many times when I uh, meet people that don't know me and they say, so what do you do? And I say, I'm a philosopher. They like turn white <laughs> and say, oh my God, I took a philosophy course ages ago in college and I didn't understand a word of it. Right. And I think, you know, that's partly the, the fault of the philosophy professors who make philosophy more difficult to understand than it needs to be. I took philosophy and therefore I can't think. <laughs> <laughs> well, exactly. this is Dan. I, I had a question for you about this. Uh, sure. It relates to your book um, maybe slightly is why does the university uh, seem to underfund something that I get from you? It seems so critical to human nature and to human beings existing, not only within the university, but for the rest of their lives. It's so interesting to me that the one department that seems to be undercut, cut down, is it because people can't see it as a useful degree and what that all means for society in general? You know, when I was still teaching, we would talk about this all the time. And actually, philosophy is in this weird position because it's considered a humanities. But in fact, it's not, it doesn't fit well with things like English departments mm -hmm. or theater departments. And actually the enrollment when I, you know, I'm a little out of it because I haven't taught for a number of years now, but basically the enrollments in philosophy departments doesn't mirror the enrollment in the other humanities. Mm. And so philosophy hasn't been undercut, at least in terms of enrollments. Mm. But I think you're right. I mean, it's part of what I'm, I just coined this phrase. So I'm uh, philosophobia. Yeah. <laughs> I love the phrase. It's great. But, but interesting and apropos to your question, Dan, is, it, uh, Tom uh, Wartenberg's book, Thoughtful Images, illustrating philosophy through art. The answer to your question, I think, is those disciplines which are so core to the human condition but are not necessarily profitable. That is, how do you make a career as a philosopher? You can be what? really good at teaching it like Tom Wartenberg and writing about it, but how many of us are really there? Not many of us. But, but using this, I mean, I think of great art you're talking about illustration, but it is an expression of the artist's view of her or his, the world around them, right? So Exactly. You know, in fact, one of the things that 
uh, art historians sort of hate about my book is that I point out that lots of great art is actually illustration, that there's a story that the artist is trying to illustrate, um, one, and in particular, illustrate philosophy. Um, there's a very famous uh, painting um, by David, the uh, French painter around the time of the French Revolution, uh, called The Death of Socrates. And in it, you see Socrates sitting, talking philosophy with his disciples just at the moment that the uh, Athenian persecutors are bringing him the cup of hemlock. The hemlock yeah. And the thing about Socrates is that he keeps doing philosophy even as he reaches for the cup of hemlock. And so David paints this painting, but it's, it's drawn from a platonic dialogue and it's illustrating the platonic dialogue. So I wanna say, hey, it's a great painting, but it's really an illustration. And what it's doing, I think one of the, the functions of illustrations is to take something that's in a philosophical text and present it to a much broader audience because the people who are interested in going to a museum and looking at art uh, I think it's a much broader public than the people who are interested in reading uh, Plato's Phaedo and thinking about Socrates right on the brink of his death. It, it, I find this fascinating. We are talking to uh, Professor Emeritus Thomas Wartenberg, uh, who taught at Mount Holyoke for decades. He has written a book, Thoughtful Images, Illustrating Philosophy Through Art. His book is arguing the great works of art um, actually bring to us to a better understanding of philosophy. That's as far as I can go right now, but we're going to do more after the break. Stay with us. More Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. Find local news and local talk for the Valley which says we need to appeal to the wealthy white people of our region because the marginalized people do not have money, which is true, but as we know, that's what happens when you have centuries of policies that are oppressive, that are racist. Where the heart of the Pioneer Valley lives. 1015 and 1400 WHMP, news, information, and the arts. Hi, this is Jessica from Fitness Together. I meet clients every day who tell me that as the number on their scale grew higher, their self-esteem dropped lower, and going to a traditional gym absolutely terrified them. Here at Fitness Together, we'll work with you one-on-one, -on -one, either virtually or in one of our private suites in Amherst or Northampton. We'll help you set and reach your fitness goals, and most importantly, smile every time you look in the mirror. Fitness Together in Amherst and Northampton. Your self-worth is worth Fitness Together. Mom, tell us about Tom Lake. A woman and her three daughters gather at the family's northern Michigan orchard where, while picking cherries, the daughters beg their mom to tell stories of the famous actor she long ago shared a stage and a romance with. Mom dishes, and the daughters soon find themselves examining their own lives, reconsidering the world and everything they thought they knew. Tom Lake, new from powerhouse author Ann Patchett. Pick up Tom Lake at Northampton's independent bookstore, Broadside Bookshop your expectations. What are your expectations for your new home addition? Construct Associates in Northampton can show families just like yours a world of possibilities. From antique to ultra-modern, 
kitchen and bath, additions, design and construction, residential and commercial, renovation and restoration. Construct Associates in Northampton and your imagination. Expanded and released by serious craftsmen doing quality work. Visit their website right now at constructassociates.com. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. We are talking with the author, Professor Thomas Wartenberg, uh, of the book Thoughtful Images, Illustrating Philosophy Through Art. That is a book that demonstrates that there's a rich tradition of illustrations of philosophy originating in ancient Greece and spreading through Europe and thriving in 20th century America. And I really want to hear from you, Tom, uh, more about the takeaway. What should listeners know about this book? Why should they read it? Well, the book really has two components. The sort of most of the book is really a look at uh, art beginning with the ancient Greeks, but really with the Romans, going all the way through uh, what the Western art tradition, which is the sole focus of the book, by the way, and going up through uh, what's called graphic novels. And I think the thing that's uh, particularly fascinating for me is to discover how many artists actually were interested in portraying philosophical ideas. And I think one of the things uh, that I think readers will be fascinated to discover is how easy it is to learn about philosophy by looking at art. Um, and that's what I try to do. I try to unpack the meaning of artworks from a uh, from you know a, a Roman uh, from the Greco-Roman period mosaic uh, all the way up to uh, some graph I call them works of graphic philosophy because they're not novels they're uh, one's a memoir but other ones are just uh, philosophical well works. I'm unqualified to actually uh, participate in this conversation in any meaningful way however by, by right of marriage, I happen to marry <laughs> an artist and an art historian who used to teach art history. Mm -hmm. And so what I do know is that um, in the Greco-Roman tradition, a whole lot of the art that was engendered had to do with their, their deities, their gods, right? And depictions of the relationship between human beings and their gods. And in the Renaissance, we see in medieval times, it's really theological, which one could argue is philosophical. That is, but I mean, the thinking golden Madonnas were the way to go, right? Until the Enlightenment, when we started to get more secular. But but some of the the works that I talk about in the medieval period are not actually uh, theological; they're philosophical. So they're illustrations of Aristotelian ideas. And again, there's there's so many fascinating details that I discovered. I discovered that. Uh, I think it was Charles V, who's a, a French ruler, wanted his uh, his advisors to be more schooled in Aristotelian philosophy, but they had to translate the works from Greek or in Latin, which his advisors didn't know, into French. But French didn't have the terms, so what they one of the things that he did is he asked an illustrator to draw illustrations that are incredibly beautiful, and there are some of them in the book. Um, I should mention that there are a lot of really beautiful plates in the book um, mm. if you want to see some great artworks. And these illustrations actually show, for example, the three types of friendship that Aristotle talks about by personifying it in terms of pairs of human beings 
exemplifying these different types of friendship. What and so that, that helped these, these advisors remember what Aristotle was saying. So I think, you know, it's just fascinating. It's, it's also a wonderful mission for an artist to, oh. to be engaged in. Yeah. Uh, today they'd be doing uh, uh, Ikea, how to put this furniture together <laughs> illustrations. Yeah, there's plenty of illustrations like that. But, um, <laughs> you know, uh, the thing is actually interesting, I think also is people tend to think, you know, we use the word graphic novels, so, and they're really mostly memoirs. Uh, and they don't think of them as having philosophical content. But one of the things I can actually, sh I actually spend a lot of time working on is Alison Bechtel's uh, work and trying to show how she's really reflects on her own life with philosophical concepts and, you know, very abstract ones like skepticism. You know, her first book, Fun Home, is it's it's all about skepticism and the role of skepticism. She talks about Descartes and, you know. Again, it's really interesting. There you actually see something that we've been talking about is that philosophy plays a role in her life and it helps her navigate severe crises that she has about the death of her father and whether he committed suicide or not and her own sexuality and his sexuality. So that it's a sort of exemplary book showing you what role philosophy can and should play in the lives of human beings. Well, that's my next question in, in terms of this book, in the couple minutes that we have left, Tom Wartenberg, um, does thoughtful images um, in illustrating philosophy through art, does it lean towards a, a philosophical perspective? That is, um, does it lean towards a Kant or another view of the world in the way that the choices of art, choices of illustrations that you make, um, do they tend to support a particular mm -hmm. philosophical perspective? I think what I did was I was actually guided by the art. So I didn't come to the book with a particular philosophical perspective other than uh, the sort of analytic perspective of trying to sort of understand the notion of illustration. And there's a chapter where I sort of am more theoretical and, and introduce certain concepts like fidelity and felicity to help us understand the nature of illustrations. But um, I was guided by the fact that there are certain figures in the history of philosophy like Plato, Aristotle, and amazingly to me, Ludwig Wittgenstein, that artists turn to over and over again to illustrate their work. And with Wittgenstein, you know, I had to go back and read more Wittgenstein than I had read um, because the artist found his work so inspiring. And, you know, one of the things I ask is why is Wittgenstein someone who would be illustrated by artists? Mm. And... Um, I think if you know the nature of his text, there's, it's sort of it's aphoristic and it sort of, you know, works well uh, in visual art. But 20th century artists, and in particular in the um, in certain schools of conceptual art, turned to Wittgenstein because of his interest in language that they shared with him, and they produced really innovative works of art in which they actually took his texts and created works of art where the text appears. In the minute that we have left, Tom, uh, is Thoughtful Images, did you write this to be used in a classroom uh, for both art and or philosophy? Or did you write this to sort of, um, for people to popularly understand the relationship between art and philosophy better? I wrote it because I wanted to make people aware of this tradition of art that have been overlooked by 
philosophers and to a lesser extent art historians and to make everybody aware of it. So it's, it's not uh, a textbook primarily. It's really oriented to, I always write in a way I think that's understandable, to the general reader, um, but also to, you know, a little bit to more specialists to try to sort of show them uh, that there is this tradition that's a fascinating tradition that brings philosophy into the public forum. And we, we all knew that great art tells us more about ourselves through the eyes of the artist. That great philosophy tells us more about ourselves through the eyes of the philosopher. And um, here we have a book that tells us that those two are not unrelated. And in fact, they are related. The book is Thoughtful Images, Illustrating Philosophy Through Art. We've been talking to Thomas Wartenberg, a uh, longtime Mount Holyoke professor. And you can get this book in your local independent bookshop. And we hope that you do. Tommy, thank you so much for not only being here, but for what you've done by writing this book. Well, thanks a lot for having me. Pleasure. We'll be right back. It is time for Cool Films with Larry Hot. Drink to me. Drink to my hell. You know I can't drink anymore. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. Massachusetts Governor Maura Healey declared a state of emergency yesterday, setting an influx of migrants seeking shelter at a time when the cost of housing continues to rise. Healey said there are nearly 5,600 families or more than 20,000 people, many of whom are migrants, currently living in state shelters, including 80 at the Days Inn in Greenfield. That's up from around 3,100 families a year ago, about an 80% increase. Uh, our call is for federal funding as well as, as work authorizations, and to that end, we'll take it through any means possible. As a right to shelter state, Massachusetts is legally required to provide eligible families shelter. Police are investigating following a head-on collision in Palmer last night that left one person seriously injured. The accident occurred at the intersection of Ward Road and Gate Street at around 9.20 p.m., a Ford sedan with a single occupant crossed the center line, striking a Honda SUV head-on. The Honda was occupied by an adult and three children at the time of impact. The occupants of the Honda, who received slight injuries, were taken to Bay State Wing Hospital in Palmer for evaluation and treatment. The occupant of the Ford was airlifted via life flight to Bay State Medical Center. Hadley, East Longmeadow, and Southwick are now officially green communities. This strategic initiative aims to foster energy efficiency, reduce energy consumption, and lower greenhouse gas emissions, making these towns eligible for grants totaling more than $445,000. Mostly sunny, lower humidity, breezy today, a high of 82 to 86. Mostly clear tonight, overnight low 56 to 62. Mostly cloudy tomorrow with rain developing during the middle of the day, a high of 80 to 84. Chance for showers Thursday evening as well. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 101.5 WHMP. Buy a mattress online? There are at least 100 websites that'll ship you a mattress rolled up like a burrito and stuffed in a box. Wait a minute. You and your mattress will spend seven or eight intimate hours together every night for years. Don't you need more than an online video and some questionable reviews to know what it actually feels like? At Talon Furniture, we mostly sell therapeutic mattresses, not Tempur-Pedic. Don't want to mislead you. 
Therapeutic, made in Brockton by fellow Red Sox fans. If you like eating local, try sleeping local. Therapeutic mattresses are clean, no toxic off-gassing. Come to Talon and lay down on a Therapeutic. See what it feels like. You can have all the time you need. And we don't roll it up like a burrito, stuff it in a box, and cram it in your car. You won't have to wrestle it through the kitchen or up the stairs. We actually deliver your new mattress and set it up. Talon Furniture, a real store, just down the hill from Amherst College. Some people make insurance sound so simple. You know, just call 1-800-INSURANCE. We'll save you money. Sounds pretty simple. So you call, give your credit card, and you're insured. They're hoping you'll never call back. Hoping you'll never have a claim. Because that's when insurance isn't so simple. In fact, it can get outright complicated. So many insurance claims have some little thing, or not so little thing, that ends up with a difference in what the insurance company thinks they owe you and what you think you should get. Maybe that nice person who signed you up at 1-800-INSURANCE will work it out for you. Or make Whalen Insurance your local insurance agent. When we sign you up, don't be surprised if our rates are lower than the 800 number. We'll get every available discount for you. We'll get you the right coverage. And if you ever need help with a claim, our door is open. Whalen Insurance. Call us for a quote. 586-1000. Your local agent working in partnership with Arbella Insurance. Whalen Insurance. Local people. Local service. Local insurance. Wow, wow, wow. It's time for cool films with who else but our own Larry Hot, Emmy Award winner, local Florence based filmmaker. Hi, Larry. Good morning. So, I can't wait to hear what you have today. Oh, today is a good one. Are you a fan of the original Twilight Zone? Are you kidding me? I uh, loved the original Twilight Zone. We grew up with that in the 50s, and now I am a fan of Black Mirror, <gasps> which is on Netflix, also known as Streamberry, and I'll tell you why. The new season of Netflix, one of the films... Uh, the new season of Black Mirror on Netflix, one of the films, is called Lock Henry. Uh, this is a film about a documentary filmmaker, which is why I wanted to talk to you about it today. So here's the, the basic plot. Two young filmmakers just graduating film school want to get their first film started. They go back to this young kid's um, hometown in northern England, and they are, he's getting ready to pull this girlfriend into a film about a guy who protects his eggs from being poached, rare eggs from being poached. <laughs> and, what a nightmare, my but, eggs being poached. But, but, the, but the girlfriend's not so hot on this topic, and it turns out that the town is deserted because there have been some horrible satanic murders there in the past. And they seize on this, or she does, the girlfriend seizes on this and says, this is the film we have to make. And they have an exchange. He's upset. He wants to do the egg poaching film. And they have this exchange. And I, if, we, if we can get this clip to work, we can hear what they say. The details are so awful, it is irresistible. Sounds tacky. No, 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 no. We won't let it be. It'll be a, a solid piece, well-made, high-end. And it's exploring the biggest topic, life and death. It's just not the kind of thing I want us to make. Well, then what do you want to make? 
a meditation on the Eggman of rum that will maybe play at a festival and maybe be admired by a couple dozen documentary nerds or something that people will watch, something they actually want to see. If you don't want to make it, I will. So there you have it, really, just a couple of sentences, the entire conflict that all filmmakers go through. Murder versus poached eggs. <laughs> well, who, who's going to die, the chicken or the egg? And, <laughs> and in, the, in this case, they end up taking it to the, the big production house, Streamberry, which is a thinly disguised Netflix, which they're making fun of on a Netflix series, very, very meta. And of course, they go for the gore and the, and the drama. And I thought when I first saw this, oh, I could talk about this because it's rare that you see something actually realistic about documentary filmmaking. Usually documentaries are in a sitcom. They make fun of the, the poor, hapless filmmaker who never has any money. Uh, the person usually has the wrong equipment. They don't have a sound person with them, which never works. You know, the technology isn't the kind of technology we'd use. And so most filmmakers, most uh, Hollywood filmmakers don't have any idea how a documentary is actually made. But in this episode of Black Mirror on Netflix, it's pretty accurate. And it's very accurate about going to a studio executive and trying to sell your idea. The pitch, they the call The pitch, it. the pitch. So I thought, well, this is something... I could talk about, but then I realized what's much more interesting is that this conflict that the filmmakers are having, not just how a documentary is made and it's accurately portrayed in this episode, but the conflict they're having between truth and art <laughs> versus drama and gore and blood, you know, if it bleeds, it leads, is something that we've been dealing with in television since the beginning of television, and it reminded me of an excellent documentary, which you can now see for free on YouTube, called uh, Rod Serling, Submitted for Your Approval. Why does Submitted for Your Approval sound so familiar? Because that's what Rod Serling said at the beginning of every episode. Uh. All right. So this is a documentary made by Susan Lacey, who was the executive producer of American Masters on PBS, and she was, had been there for several years before she decided to actually produce and direct her own film. And this is basically her debut, and it is absolutely brilliant. The entire film is in black and white. Uh, all the interviews were in black and white, and it mirrors, in a black way, um, all the episodes, all the hundred and something episodes, 159 episodes, I think. Of Twilight Zone. Of Twilight Zone. Ninety of them were written by Rod Serling. So the vast majority written by Rod Serling. And it came out in 1959 after he had made uh, a success uh, doing the original TV dramas, the live TV dramas. His breakthrough hit was Requiem for a Heavyweight. Brilliant script. But, he, but the networks changed and they started pushing sitcoms and westerns. And he realized that he could get his ideas out with thinly veiled science fiction. And one of the stories they tell in this documentary is he wants to do, before he starts The Twilight Zone, he wants to do the Emmett Till story while it's still hot. The in young 14-year-old boy who was accused of... A 14-year-old uh, uh, black boy who was, who was, uh, who was lynched, uh, became a cause celeb. 
the networks won't let him do it. So they changed the script to a Western where a Mexican is hanged, lynched. Right? They can't do it contemporaneously because the topical, top, topical politics is too hot for television. So the Twilight Zone, once this film gets into it, explains that all the issues of the day are presented as science fiction. Right? So that you're looking at it in a completely different way, but in, underneath it, you're getting at it. Now, I think we have a, we have a clip lined up that'll give a sense of the battles that Rod Serling had to fight. Mount Sinai of Advertisers Row is that at no time in a political drama must a speech or character be equated with an existing political party or current political problems. Senator Frank Norton attached. So several million viewers were treated to an incredible display of senators shouting, gesticulating, and talking in hieroglyphics, saying not a single thing germane to the current political scene. Rod loved the controversy of sociological themes. Those are the things that really interested him. And Rod really kept battling to do controversial, socially relevant material. They don't want to offend with controversy, but TV offends by the inclusion of commercials in a high-quality drama. How can you put on a meaningful drama when every 15 minutes proceedings are interrupted by 12 dancing rabbits with toilet paper? No dramatic art form should be dictated and controlled by men whose training and instincts are cut of an entirely different cloth. The fact remains that these gentlemen sell consumer goods, not an art form. It was written on the wind what was going to happen. They sell consumer goods, not an art form. And he talks about how can you make a good work, good drama, when you're interrupted every 15 minutes by 12 commercial. dancing rabbits selling toilet paper. Uh, the commercial that goes with this <laughs> right. actually exists. Uh, I didn't remember the 12 dancing rabbits, but I certainly remember the stupidity of the kind of commercials that interrupted Twilight Zone and everything else we watched as kids. And we didn't know of a non-commercial world. You know, that, that we, I think we associated all television with commercials and just having to bear it. And Rod Serling himself went through this agony of how can he do this? He thought of himself as Eugene O'Neill, trapped in commercial television. But he survived for, for uh, five years making these episodes and then went on to write, this surprised me, Planet of the Apes. I did not know that. Yes, yes. And, and some other, oh, and Seven Days in May. Was which was a nuclear war was a critical a critical success. Um, and one way I identified with Rod Serling in a very small way. Rod Serling was five feet four inches tall. <laughs> you saw eye to eye with Rod Serling, <laughs> and I'm five five. <laughs> I towered over him. But I do remember uh, Larry Hot. I I remember very well that Twilight Zone. Quite often, the story which they wove or he wove. Uh, involved anti-materialism, like uh, our consumptive passion and where that's leading us, or uh, race, like being intolerant of other people that are different. Sometimes they'd be aliens. Or but I always knew that there was well, like a, a moral of the story in the Twilight Zone episode. All right, and one of the most famous episodes is the one where there's an operation happening. Uh, there's a woman under anesthesia. Her face is completely wrapped up. 
and the doctors are saying, I don't know whether we've cured her or not. And you never see the faces of any of the doctors. And as they unwrap her face, they say, we failed. It's a disaster. We haven't changed a thing. She's and, she, and she's absolutely stunningly beautiful. Right. And everybody else has these horrific alien-like faces. That. And of right. course, the famous William Shatner one where he was uh, thought to be crazy. He was coming off a nervous breakdown. He looks out on the wing and he sees this monster there that nobody else sees, and they think that he's crazy. He's eventually let her, let off in uh, right. In fact, that that reminded me of another one. They opened a film with this monsters on Maple Street. I know uh, Rod Serling wrote a famous set of short stories, and this was the one that got people's attention, where. Aliens come down to a little town, stand outside the town, and turn off all the equipment, all the electricity, all the lawnmowers, everything. And within minutes, people start attacking each other. And, of course, this is an, a, a thinly veiled metaphor for our fear of communism, right? They were gonna, that because we have this great fear of this outside force, we eventually turn on each other, which is what populism is, and which is what's happening right now with Trumpism. Well, this is, this is just too interesting. Larry, so Larry Hott, a documentary filmmaker, is here talking about two young documentary filmmakers, talking about whether to make a, meaning, uh, a documentary film about something more meaningful to that region that involves this, this spectacular blood and guts kind of stuff, or something as uh, pr- potentially entertaining as poaching, not in a safari, but poaching eggs. And we're using Rod Serling and his penchant for drawing entertainment from meaningful subjects in a veiled way so they didn't offend the powers that be at the time that he did his work. We are going to continue our conversation, wow, right after this. Mr. Rabbit, your coat is mighty great. Yes. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. Go out to eat, save 30%. Get a guitar or take lessons, save 30%. Pork chops, rug cleaning, hypnotherapy, save 30%. The Shop 30 store, full value gift certificates to local restaurants and merchants, plus tickets and events. Just click, print, and save 30% on the stuff you were going to buy anyway. The Shop 30 store, open right now at whmp.com. iPads, MacBooks, Sonos speakers, tax-free. Tax-free weekend is this weekend. Yes Computers is ready now. Upgrade your home office. A new Mac, a new printer? Get ready for back to school with cases, covers, bags, even Apple Watches. Call Yes Computers to place your pre-order now and pick it up on tax-free weekend. No lines, no hassle, no taxes. Yes Computers in downtown Northampton. Shop local and independent this tax-free weekend at Yes Computers, your local Apple specialists. YesComputers.com. Yes Computers. You love your car. We all do. It's part of our DNA. If your vehicle gets into an accident, the people to turn to are the collision experts at Fort Hill Collision Services in Amherst. Fort Hill lets you leave your concerns at the door. They'll fix your vehicle to better than factory standards and deal with your insurance company from start to finish. Fort Hill is locally owned and operated. They're part of the community, and they guarantee the work they do every time. Trust Fort Hill Collision Services, Route 9, Amherst, and online at forthillcs.com. 
What's cooking at River Valley Co-op? Here's avid eater, grocery shopper, and co-op member Bill Newman. Local farmers are arriving at the co-op every day with summer berries, corn, tomatoes, and watermelon, and endless bounty. At the co-op seafood counter, little neck clams are rolling in. What goes better with corn and tomatoes than sweet, briny little necks? No time to cook today? The co-op makes pizza, sandwiches, burgers, sushi, and smoothies, and they make it all from scratch. River Valley Co-op, wild about local. Everyone is welcome. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. And we're going to continue our conversation with documentary filmmaker Larry Hott, who's talking about, well, documentary filmmaking and the subject of such documentaries. Larry. And we've been talking about a film, 20-year-old film on YouTube, anybody could see it for free, called Rod Serling, Submitted for Your Approval. And the reason we're talking about this is because Black Mirror on Netflix is usually popular and is often compared to The Twilight Zone. Uh, it is said sometimes that The Twilight Zone was optimistic and hopeful, and Black Mirror is very cynical and despairing. Sign of uh, the times. You could, you could choose yourself. And we mentioned that there's an episode, Lock Henry, in this season on Netflix that talks about documentaries, about documentary filmmakers, and how do you get something on the air, what the sacrifices and compromises you make. Uh, let's go to a clip from the original film about Rod Serling, a 1995 American Masters film, uh, and then we'll come back after the clip and talk about the uh, essence of Rod Serling's life and why he was making The Twilight Zone. We're writing as well as acting ex executive producer on this one. Is pre-censorship, though, involved? Are you simply writing easy? Well, these are very adult, uh, I think, high-quality, half-hour, extremely polished films. But because they deal in the areas of fantasy and imagination and science fiction and all, all of those things, uh, there's no opportunity to cop a plea or, or chop an axe or anything. In essence, you've given up on writing anything important for television, right? Yeah. For the, well... Well, I think it cut out. It cut out there. Um, but what Rod Serling is is saying is that he has to do something different than the obvious. He has to be more subtle. And it reminded me of what was happening when censorship came into Hollywood in the '30s. Originally, there there it was wide open, and you can do and say anything. And then the censorship board came in, and producers and directors and writers had to get more creative and more subtle, and the films actually got better, right? So we wouldn't have Twilight Zone if we didn't have bad commercial television because Rod Serling had to come up with a way of saying what he wanted to say in a more creative way. One of the fun things that you see in this documentary, submitted for your approval, which you can watch on YouTube, is he mentions his life in Binghamton, New York, growing up as a pure happy time. A lot of times you think, oh, this is, I, this is coming from his childhood angst. There's an image of a carousel that appears in many different Twilight Zones, and the filmmakers wisely go to Bingham and find the original carousel and point out that he was a happy kid until he volunteered for the Army in World War II, became a paratrooper, landed in the Philippines, and was involved in some of the worst firefights you could imagine. They have some stock footage of it, but give you a sense of what he went through. And he, and he writes about that, and you hear that writing in the film, and you get a sense that what Rod Serling is trying to do is reconcile his happy childhood with what happened to him 
in war and the trauma of war. And the reconciliation ends up the twilight zone. It ends up in the twilight zone. And you see that you see that conflict and the irony. Uh, and one one episode that lots of people remember. And earlier in the show this morning, we were talking about the standout episodes. It's the one. It's a nuclear holocaust episode, where this man with glasses, very obvious, kind of uh, glass bottle, uh, Coke bottle glasses. After the after the uh, Holocaust, the books are strewn all over the library steps, and he's delighted. He's happy because finally he has time, and then his glasses fall off and his glasses break. Uh, and the glasses wear my nightmare. And, and, and he, right, he's got all the time in the world and all the books in the world, and, can't and, he, can, see. and he can't see. Oh my gosh, that sounds submitted like for your Zone. approval. Yeah, really. Well, look, I think the Twilight Zone with Rod Serling. They really hold up. They're now 70 years old, some of them, or whatever, yeah. 60 years old, and they really hold up. So we're talking with Larry Hott. It is American Masters Rod Serling submitted for your approval. You can get it on YouTube. Larry, you always bring such interesting stuff, and I always follow your advice, and you tune me into stuff that I didn't otherwise know about. Meanwhile, thank you all for joining us on Talk the Talk. Like Larry Hawk, remember to walk the walk. Find local news and local talk for the Valley. It is critical that the investigation is not limited to federal violations of gender discrimination, but includes the alleged allegations of corruption, nepotism, abuse of power, and use of position to aid Ms. Cunningham's personal business. These allegations actually require an investigation by a different body than a Title IX investigator. Where the heart of the Pioneer Valley lives. 1015 and 1400 WHMP. News, information, and the arts. Imagine working hard for so many years and reaching your retirement only to find out there's an issue with your pension or 401k. Unfortunately, it's a problem too many Americans face. The New England Pension Assistance Project can help you get the benefits you've earned by providing free legal help. Contact the New England Pension Assistance Project at 888-425-6067 or visit them online at pensionhelp.org slash newengland. A public service from the U.S. Administration on Aging's Pension Counseling and Information Program. WHMP Northampton. And this is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg on WHMP. And welcome to Talk the Talk. I am Buzz Eisenberg. Bill Newman is off. Um, there is in our region, we're very lucky to have what some people would call a, uh, a think tank, I think, um, an activist organization. Uh, it's a really important one. It's, it is the Prison Policy Initiative. It's been around for more than two decades. It is a nonprofit. It is nonpartisan. And its purpose is to talk about the uh, huge harm that mass criminalization and mass incarceration has caused for not just so many people, but our communities, our society. And its uh, purpose is to get us thinking and talking and to initiate um, policy proposals and insights that will spark us, move us, motivate us to look for a more just way to um, deal with those people who, um, that's not who they are, that's just what they did, and how can we be more just society in remedying uh, uh, bad actions by not necessarily bad people. We also are in the midst of a climate crisis, and um, the climate crisis is something that, uh, despite the denial 
that comes out of so many people from so many red states and Congress about the impact of it. It is on us. It is upon us. It is here. We know because we can see how it impacts our lives, but how does it impact the lives of people who are residents of jails and our prisons? Well, with us to talk about it right now is a research analyst at the Prison Policy Initiative, Leah Wang. Leah, welcome to the show. Thank you, Buzz. Thank you for having me. It, it's a pleasure to have you. I am fixing to learn a lot about uh, the impact that climate change has on those people who are residing, uh, who are incarcerated right now. So what has your research turned up for you? How did you go about learning about this important topic? So we set out to write a piece uh, to add to the conversation about heat inside of prisons during this brutal summer especially and to get people thinking about the overlap between mass incarceration and the many impacts of climate change that clearly we can no longer ignore. So we know that prisons are generally bad places to be for many reasons, but now we have this small and growing body of empirical research showing that these hot, hot summers are actually killing people in prisons. And as we'll discuss, this is happening everywhere, not just in Texas, not just in states that are famously hot. So we need to be really aware of what's happening even here in New England. So what has your research unearthed specifically? So we wrote about a study that came out a few months ago and a group of public health researchers um, looked at extreme heat days and heat waves, um, what a heat wave would be relative to every state prison and private prison in the US based on where it's located. They looked at 20 years of data uh, when temperatures did go into those extremes and they looked at deaths that happened in those prisons around the time of that extreme heat event or heat wave. And what they found was not necessarily surprising, but absolutely devastating. Uh, so they found that for every 10 degrees above the average temperature for that location, there was a 5% increase in deaths attributed to that heat. So that's not even an extreme heat day. That's just, you know, a warmer than average day. But then a day of extreme heat, so like a top 10% kind of day, was associated with a 3.5% increase in deaths. And then they found that two and three day heat waves had even more lethal impacts. Um, they also looked at suicide deaths and found that those extremely hot days would lead to suicides, particularly uh, over the few days that followed. Um, so they found really huge impacts on mental health and physical health um, due, to, due to these hot days. And um, they also looked at this geographically. So they looked at the Midwest, the South, the West and the Northeast. And surprisingly, the prisons in the Northeast, when they experienced hot days or heat waves, um, the increase in deaths was much higher compared to other regions. So I think people would be surprised um, to know that Northeast prisons are actually extremely deadly when it comes to, you know, relatively hot days for our region. But, but that's what they found. What we know, and we have been talking about for a long time, uh, progressives and people within the industry, even who are not so progressive, that we're trying to find basic standards of habitability 
that can um, exist within our uh, confinement areas, our prisons, our jails, for those people who inhabit them. We're talking about sort of basic standards of livability. Um, so is it, right. yeah, we, when we have these heat conditions, are we talking about clean air being impacted, that people have, are forced to breathe? Are we talking about the water they're forced to drink? Are we talking about uh, the cleanliness of the showers they're forced to take, uh, use the water of? Uh, or is it just the heat itself that forms the great threat to habitability? Sure. I mean, absolutely. The heat acts on these other conditions of confinement that we know to be fairly poor in prisons and jails um, and makes life even more miserable. And as I'm sure you've heard others say, um, you know, the, the punishment is to serve a sentence in prison. The punishment is not um, the cruel and unusual conditions found inside. People serving time in prison and jail have a right to safe and humane conditions. Unfortunately, you know, if those if those did exist, prison policy initiative would have a lot less work to do. So certainly people in prisons are, you know, um, they have very controlled access to things like showers, to things like water when it is even drinkable. We've heard many stories of um, filthy water that's absolutely unappealing or or makes people sick. Um, clean air is, is certainly not a priority in prisons either. And prisons tend to be made of these thick concrete walls, which are heat retaining materials. So when we have these hot days, the prisons just stay hot throughout the night. Um, and that, you know, our bodies need to cool off at night. So we have these warm nighttime temperatures that actually um, are contributing to that sort of deadly impact because our bodies, um, yeah, need that cooling period. And, so, and, and research analyst mm -hmm. Leah Wang, I'm sorry to interrupt you. Um, I thought it was a, a period on your sentence, but we're talking <laughs> to Leah Wang. She's a research analyst with the Prison Policy Initiative. I know Dan has a question, but I just wanted to point out, I remember reading another study. I was just looking for it and I haven't found it which was done by you folks, and it was about the fact that about a third of all federal and state prisons are sort of built within a few miles of federal Superfund sites. That is, these contaminated, toxic-infused uh, sites uh, upon which or next to which prisons are built, and you add to that the problems with the heat and the water that you're describing, it is a mm -hmm. toxic blend, isn't it? A toxic blend, that's a good way of putting it. I mean, no one wants a prison in their backyard. Prisons have moved further away from where we live. They're sited in rural places. They're sited exactly where, where toxic um, things have already happened or downstream from toxic activities. So yes, a couple of years ago, I wrote about uh, prisons as toxic places, um, not only because of what's going on inside, but exactly where they are sited. Um, they're also sited, like I said, far from where people live. So expecting visitors, 
maintaining connections with loved ones, all of that is severed. Um, and then people are people are getting sick while they're inside um, because there's no escape from um, burning of toxic materials or nearby wildfires. Um, the list goes on and on. But um, yes, prisons, the overlap between prisons and environmental injustice is very is very broad um, and that's that's a new area of exploration for us to get people thinking about um, prisons not just as like a, a social injustice but an environmental injustice this is dan um you had said earlier that there's a a, a greater uh, percentage of deaths i guess in prisons in the northeast relative to the south or south west of america where at least we read in the news there's a lot more heat waves and temperatures rise over 110. so can you explain why is there such a discrepancy regionally between us in the northeast and in the south and the southwest where there tends to be more uh, droughts uh, and hot weather yeah well surprisingly it actually sort of tracks with some research that shows people in temperate climates are not as acclimated to extreme heat days. So, um, so even though it is kind of a surprising finding that we really highlighted because we wanted people um, that are not in Texas, for example, to sort of think about how, how prisons are deadly everywhere. Um, it's there is some truth to the fact that people in hot climates are acclimated to hot temperatures. It's it's hard to say that anyone is acclimated to extreme heat relative to their to their region. Um, but I think what we found so far is that people in temperate climates, like here in New England, the Northeast, um, yeah, are simply not physiologically prepared for the heat that we've been seeing. And so the researchers found that those, those hot, hot days actually were associated with an increasing number of deaths compared to um, the deaths that they looked at in other regions. Leah Wang, isn't it, uh, uh, putting aside the humanity of what your uh, research has disclosed empirically proven uh, exists that there's a greater likelihood and there are greater numbers of death as a result of climate crisis. Um, isn't it, doesn't it behoove the Federal Bureau of Prisons or local state departments of education and executive offices of, uh, of public safety like we have here in Massachusetts, doesn't it behoove them financially to take into account the ravages caused by climate change and to better insulate their population from adverse impacts? Incarceration is absolutely an expensive experiment that we've embarked on for many decades. And certainly talking about each sort of harsh condition of confinement, each person that gets sick and requires medical attention, each person that is simply kept in a prison for years and years and years, these are definitely fiscally wasteful, you know, endeavors. Um, I mean, we haven't even really talked about air conditioning, which is the big sort of um, 
talking point around the heat in prisons and whether or not prisons should have air conditioning. So that's, you know, one example of of something that sounds very expensive, but compared to what, you know, compared to keeping people in harsh conditions, um, keeping them sick, keeping them, you know, from having a successful life when they get out of prison. These are all actually quite costly to taxpayers too. So what we've seen is that states fight, you know, calls for air conditioning and calls for increased access to ice and access to water and really simple things like that. And that's, it's more expensive for them to be fighting this in the courts than to just install air conditioning and to just make life a little bit less miserable for people inside. Well, I so, don't know. I don't know why it takes a prison policy initiative, a, a nonprofit, nonpartisan, to point out that which uh, the data clearly would show to the Federal Bureau of Prisons or the Massachusetts Department of Corrections. We are talking with uh, Leah Wang and her research as an analyst with the prison policy initiative that shows that the changes we're all bemoaning with respect to the climate really focus harsh and unforgivable impact on those residents of our prisons. We're going to be right back and continue our conversation with Leah Wang right after this. More Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. Hi, Tom Hartman here. Be sure to join me noon to 3 Eastern Time, Monday through Friday, right here on the Tom Hartman Program. Occupying the media three hours a day, five days a week for We the People. On 101.5 and 1400. Join me noon to 3 Eastern Time, Monday through Friday, right here on the Tom Hartman Program. WHMP. a mattress online? There are at least a hundred websites that'll ship you a mattress rolled up like a burrito and stuffed in a box. Wait a minute. You and your mattress will spend seven or eight intimate hours together every night for years. Don't you need more than an online video and some questionable reviews to know what it actually feels like? At Talon Furniture, we mostly sell therapeutic mattresses, not Tempur-Pedic. Don't want to mislead you. Therapeutic. Made in Brockton by fellow Red Sox fans. If you like eating local, try sleeping local. Therapeutic mattresses are clean, no toxic off-gassing. Come to Talon and lay down on a Therapeutic. See what it feels like. You can have all the time you need. And we don't roll it up like a burrito, stuff it in a box, and cram it in your car. You won't have to wrestle it through the kitchen or up the stairs. We actually deliver your new mattress and set it up. Talon Furniture, a real store, just down the hill from Amherst College. Jay Burnham here, voice of the Massachusetts Minutemen. Touchdown, Massachusetts! I just wanted to let you know that all of the UMass football action can be heard right here on our new flagship home for Massachusetts football. It's WHMP. When it's happening here in the Valley, we're talking about it. The only live and local news in the Pioneer Valley and for the Pioneer Valley. WHMP. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. 
And we are back. We are uh, speaking with uh, Leah Wang. Um, she is an analyst, a research analyst at the Prison Policy Initiative. And I should just say, this is a really extraordinary organization that does really important work. Those people who are uh, most forgotten in society at the bottom rung of, of the social ladder, those people who we have uh, decided uh, as a result of uh, their having committed an offense of one type or another, our zeal about incarceration uh, has led us to lock them up and then forget about them until they're back. And once again, we bemoan their conduct when we let them out on the street without the resources to be there. So the Prison Policy Initiative has been around for over 20 years. Uh, you can uh, access it. Just go online to prisonpolicy.org um, and read about this extraordinary organization. And uh, Leah Wang, people, how can they access your research on the impact of climate change on people in prisons? Thanks. Yeah. So again, we are at prisonpolicy.org. And if you search climate change, you'll find some of our work on this extreme heat and other impacts of a changing climate. We're also on social media at prison policy. So once we've schooled ourselves, once we've learned more about it, what should, what's the takeaway uh, from reading your reports and also from this conversation today? What, what should people know? What should people do to have an impact? Well, the first thing I want people to know that we haven't quite zoomed out to talk about yet is that this is a public health crisis that we're dealing with. This research that we've been talking about, about extreme heat, it was performed by public health researchers, and this should be approached as a public health problem. And the best public health strategy that we have in terms of mass incarceration and the excessive conditions found inside is to get people out of prisons. So it might seem like we're talking about air conditioning and we're talking about water. We are, but we're actually more importantly talking about decarceration or removing people from correctional facilities. So we're getting vulnerable people out of these, what they describe as convection ovens. We're looking at early release for people who are sick, who are old, who are pregnant. These people are particularly vulnerable to heat and again, these other aspects of being in prison that are miserable. I don't know if you know this, but Massachusetts has the highest proportion of older people in prisons. We have a very old prison population. Um, so, you know, from many angles, we know that a lot of these vulner vulnerable people don't pose any threat to public safety and they can be safely taken out of prisons and not have to suffer, um, suffer inside. Um, lesser, you know, lesser actions do involve making sure air conditioning is in all of our prisons because air conditioning is no longer a privilege in this climate. It's a right. Um, making sure it's not just common spaces or correctional staff spaces that are air conditioned. It's actual living and sleeping spaces so that people can have relief, their bodies can cool off at night and increasing access to things like water, ice, showers, making things free. Um, so, you know, this is a matter of contacting your senator, your congressperson uh, of your state and calling for, at the very least, 
livable conditions in our prisons and jails, because that's not what we're seeing anywhere in the U.S. Yeah, both federal and state contact your representatives and make demands. You know, these these we can turn our eyes in the opposite direction, but that doesn't change the reality. The reality is members of our community are victims of this zeal, this punitive zeal that this country somehow it's always had it, but in the '90s, it, it it resulted in you know mandatory minimums and uh, just mass incarceration. Uh, we lead the world in percentage mm-hmm. of our population that we incarcerate, and I think things are getting a little bit better, especially since the pretrial stuff. We're not holding people in bail and stuff like that. But we saw it during the pandemic. We were all dreadfully concerned. Not all, <laughs> most most of the rational among us were uh, concerned about the. Uh, terrible impact of the pandemic and and congregate housing, you know, we saw in in rest areas, skilled nursing areas, and in the prison population, deaths were just higher. It caused some of us to raise our eyebrows and say, "Whoa, we never think about those people in terms of public safety." Well, climate crisis is a public health and safety crisis, and is focusing, as Leah is telling us, uh, its ravages in our prison populations. Um, so if people go and they read uh, about this, is it only heat? What about, you know, we, we have more frequency in the number of hurricanes and the ferocity of hurricanes and tornado activity. Uh, we see hail where it didn't exist before. Those kinds of things have impact on our prison population as well. Absolutely. Extreme weather is not just warmer days, yeah, we're talking about natural disasters. And when it comes to natural disasters, we don't go into this too much in our work, but there is a growing body of people sort of looking at how prisons handle emergencies. We know how prisons did not handle the COVID-19 emergency pandemic, but when it comes to sort of these acute natural disasters, tornadoes, hurricanes, flooding, There's actually a really disturbing lack of emergency protocols for people who are incarcerated. They're often left out of emergency plans, even at the state level. So again, we're talking about contacting our state representatives and figuring out how incarcerated people are or aren't included in plans to evacuate, plans to transfer people um, when prisons, which are like aging, decaying buildings, very vulnerable to contamination and crumbling, um, how people are forced to stay there in these horrible conditions. Um, We know horrible stories of like Hurricane Katrina, Hurricane Harvey, Um, people in prisons and jails were not moved when people outside were leaving as fast as they could. So again, extreme weather uh, leaves people in prisons extremely vulnerable. Well, I guess that's where we're going to have to leave it. But um, I encourage everyone not just to read uh, Leah Wang's report by going to prisonpolicy.org and uh, putting in climate change in the search engine inside their, uh, their website, but also to support the Prison Policy Initiative. It is a local um, uh, organization. It is a nonprofit. It is uh, nonpartisan. And it's just a research tool for us to learn more about ourselves and the way we treat each other. 
So please, prisonpolicy.org, push that donate button, support their work, read the incredible work that comes out of there. Leah Wang, thank you not just for being with us this this, uh, morning, but also for all that you do. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure to talk with you. Okay, we will be right back. We're going to be talking to William Danielson um, with, of course, Brian Adams, uh, the naturalist who writes in the recorder. We'll be right back. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. Massachusetts Governor Maura Healey declared a state of emergency yesterday, setting an influx of migrants seeking shelter at a time when the cost of housing continues to rise. Healey said there are nearly 5,600 families or more than 20,000 people, many of whom are migrants, currently living in state shelters, including 80 at the Days Inn in Greenfield. That's up from around 3,100 families a year ago, about an 80% increase. Uh, our call is for federal funding as well as, as work authorizations, and to that end, we'll take it through any means possible. As a right to shelter state, Massachusetts is legally required to provide eligible families shelter. Police are investigating following a head-on collision in Palmer last night that left one person seriously injured. The accident occurred at the intersection of Ward Road and Gate Street at around 9.20 p.m., A Ford sedan with a single occupant crossed the center line, striking a Honda SUV head-on. The Honda was occupied by an adult and three children at the time of impact. The occupants of the Honda, who received slight injuries, were taken to Bay State Wing Hospital in Palmer for evaluation and treatment. The occupant of the Ford was airlifted via life flight to Bay State Medical Center. Hadley, East Longmeadow, and Southwick are now officially green communities. This strategic initiative aims to foster energy efficiency, reduce energy consumption, and lower greenhouse gas emissions, making these towns eligible for grants totaling more than $445,000. Mostly sunny, lower humidity, breezy today, a high of 82 to 86. Mostly clear tonight, overnight low 56 to 62. Mostly cloudy tomorrow with rain developing during the middle of the day, a high of 80 to 84. Chance for showers Thursday evening as well. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 101.5 WHMP. You're a nonprofit doing good work in the community. You want to let people know? That's easy. Talk to Hannah. Tell her you want to have a PSA on WHMP. If you're a community nonprofit, WHMP helps you communicate. Have an event? Need donations? Volunteers? Talk to Hannah. She'll help you craft a message and we'll run it at no cost. Hi, it's Hannah. Email me at hward at whmp.com or call me at 586-7400. WHMP News, Information, and the Arts, and messages from community nonprofits. Are you tired of feeling like a watchless hero in a world full of timekeeping villains? Fear not. Hero Watch Repair is here to save the day. With over 20 years of experience and a heroic five-star customer rating, Hero Watch is the ultimate superhero of watch repair and customization in the Valley. These heroes possess the power to buy, fix, sell, and customize watches like no other. They'll swoop in, rescue your timepiece, and restore it to its former glory. Call Avery at Hero Watch Repair, East Hampton. Vehicle owners reporting problems to federal regulators last month singled out airbags, stalling, steering, and acceleration problems, according to a consumer affairs analysis of complaints filed with the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration. Hyundai drew 43 complaints. The future of health care has taken another step forward. 
Ten months after its introduction, Amazon's virtual health service, Amazon Clinic, is now available in all 50 states. Users can interact with a health care provider through either video or text. Google is making it easier to remove information about you that shows up in search results. Google says people can access the removal tool in the Google app by clicking on their Google account photo and selecting results about you. You can remove personal but not professional information. I'm Mark Huffman. Learn more at ConsumerAffairs.com. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. And welcome back to the show. You know, we are blessed with a, a couple of wonderful uh, regional, very old, among the oldest Newspapers in the country are the Daily Hampshire Gazette and the Greenfield Recorder. And we often read in the Recorder uh, columns um, by a regular columnist who teaches us about the world uh, that surrounds us. And who better to talk about the world that surrounds us than our own Brian Adams, our science and sustainability correspondent. Brian, you have a really special guest today. We do. And not only is it the Recorder, but the Gazette. Bill Danielson? is a regular columnist. He writes once a week, uh, Speaking of Nature, which is a marvelous column that's not only the written word, but beautiful photos that accompany uh, that. Um, Bill, welcome to the show. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. So you write this column for the Gazette and the Recorder. It's called Speaking of Nature. That's right. And it's a really wonderful, folksy story that draws readers in. I'm so curious... Uh, how you choose what topic to write about once a week? Well, what I have to do is I have to, like, feel it in me. Like, uh, there are mornings when I wake up and there's nothing there. And I'm like, what the hell am I going to write about today? So, sounds like my usual. <laughs> right. But what I find is if I spend a lot of time outside with a camera f- literally focused on one particular thing, then I have something to write about. And so it's it's rather easy uh, in the spring and in the summer and in the fall, and and then it gets a little more challenging in the winter when you don't go outside and spend that much time out there because it's cold. Does so, does the photo drive the story, or does the story drive the photo? At this point, the photo drives the story. Uh, I I have uh, started. Uh, way back in 1997 when I was writing and there was no photo because they just hired me to do the writing, didn't even know that I could do photos. Um, And I could write about pretty much anything I wanted because I didn't need to talk about or back it up with a photo of some sort. Uh, That changed a year later when I sent in a photograph of a cedar wax wing that someone had brought to me because it had become intoxicated by eating fermented crab apples in November. A, a drunken bird. A drunken bird. <laughs> photograph. There so I printed that. By the way, we've that. just seen Cedar Waxwing. Just saw two of them in our house, and we generally don't, but we just, that happened last week. This has week. been a good year for Cedar Waxwings. I don't, I'm seeing them all over my yard, too. Yeah. But uh, I published that particular photo and a story about drunken birds on New Year's Day because everybody <laughs> was suffering from a hangover, you know, like, and people liked it. And they said, well, if you have any more photos, 
we'll take them. Back in back in the day when I did criminal law a lot as an attorney, I can't tell you how much money I made from drunken birds on New Year's <laughs> yes, Day. Yes, of course. <laughs> right. Um, it's really interesting your your column. It's a it's more of a story format. Uh, it is not driven by hard science. Uh, it draws the readers in. Uh, is that intentional on your part to reach a wider audience? Absolutely, yes. Um, when when I started off, I was fresh out of graduate school, and I was sort of the hardcore naturalist, and I got into all the little details about feather patterns and the juveniles and the egg sizes and all that kind of stuff. And I wrote like that for many years, and I think I'm now up to 1,015 columns that I've written. And wow, a picture is worth a thousand columns, right? And so, if they're of drunken birth, if I try and write one of those super detailed natural history ones, I find even I get bored a little bit. And it's much easier to draw people in with an interesting story, and then I'll like I'll throw in a few details just because it helps to expand people's understanding of things. But I want them to read, and people read because it's enjoyable, and so. And your columns are super enjoyable. They really are. For those of our listeners that have not read Bill Danielson's Speaking of Nature, it comes out once a week on a specific day. Is that right? So different papers, different days. Uh In the Recorder, it's on Mondays. And in the Gazette, it's on Wednesdays. And it's the same column? Same column. Is that right? And I recently added the Berkshire Eagle. Oh, nice. Which now appears on Saturdays. Wow. So, well, there you go. Three my papers. writing empire expands. Yeah, exactly. Can't get rid of the guy. <laughs> no. Um, I'm, I'm curious as to this, uh, this thinking chair. Ah, uh, the for, thinking chair. For those who have read Bill's columns, he talks all, you write very fondly about these wonderful sessions sitting in the thinking chair. Tell <laughs> right. us about that and tell us what revelations you get from this. All this right. Thing. And how can I get one? The inspiration for the thinking chair came from the writer John Burroughs. He was a famous national treasure of the turn of the 20th century. Uh, He was a contemporary of John Muir, and he would talk with and advise President Roosevelt. I mean, he was the real deal. And in his writings, he said... All you have to do is sit in one place, and eventually the whole world will walk by. And I really took that to heart. And so as a photographer, of course, being mobile and hunting the birds down uh, is one way to do it. Or you can just sit and wait for them in the perfect setting. So I decided as a photographer, uh, I would set up. just a simple plastic Adirondack chair from a hardware store or something that I bought and um, set it up at the edge of a wet meadow in the back of my house so that it is looking north with the sun to my back in the shade and I can just look out across this beautiful meadow and wait. And sometimes seeing the birds is the best part 
And then other times, the waiting and the quiet and just the, the quiet mind. Do you have a bird book with you? Do you you just knowledgeable enough to recognize what you see? At this point, the only thing that will give me trouble is that group of birds called the confusing fall warblers. And they are notorious. They've been called the confusing fall warblers because they're juveniles in odd plumages, and you just sometimes don't know what you're looking at. Brian Adams, are you confused by the uh, confusing... I'm more Ball confused warblers. by the drunken birds, the, <laughs> yeah. the, but the drunken, confusing warblers—that would be—that right. would be really something. And birders also have a, a fond saying for sparrows and other difficult to identify birds. They call them the the little brown jobs, the the LBJs. Like I don't know what it is. It's one of the LBJs. When you so. go out to your thinking chair, yeah. with your camera. Yes. Do you have an idea in mind? Are you looking for a specific bird that day? Maybe you know the cedar wax wings are coming in or the little brown jobbies. Is there, is there an idea in your head or is it whatever comes up is what you'll, what you'll take there's, pictures of? There's a wish list in my head, but nature has to cooperate and they don't always cooperate. So at this time of year, I would go down and I would say, well, we're beginning the fall migration. Birds are going to start coming south. So I will get out my cell phone, and I'll get on to a website uh, called LiveBird. And it's with uh, the Cornell University and UMass, and, and what they're doing is they're using weather radar to track bird movements at night. It's called BirdCast. I'm sorry, BirdCast. And so I will look and see, okay, is New England filled with birds flying? Have they been migrating during the night or not? And it all depends on the weather. It all depends on storms, prevailing winds. And so I will sit down there with a wish list, but ultimately it's whoever presents themselves. So a great, a great example would be one day I'm just minding my own business, and there's this cardinal. And this cardinal has come back and forth many times. He's a regular. see him every day. He's got a little bald patch over one eye, so I can recognize him. I call him Big Bruce. And so Big Bruce was coming along, and I sort of ignore him because he's there all the time. But I noticed that this cardinal was on the grassy path that I have mowed so that I can get down there. And... He was behaving rather oddly, and I couldn't quite figure it out, so I shift my attention to him. And he's standing there, and then he's making a jab at something and backing up and jumping up in the air and doing all kinds of weird things. So I finally bring up my big lens, and I start looking at it, and he is fighting a praying mantis. Oh, my goodness. And there's this showdown between the cardinal and a praying mantis. And you wouldn't think it, but a mantis on its legs has these very long, sharp spikes yes, that they, they use to so kill. Yes, they're so scary looking. And you could take an eye out pretty Ooh. easily if the mantis strikes the cardinal in the eye. That's bad. So the bird has to be careful. Wow. But And the bird is trying to eat the mantis? Yes. Uh-huh. And, and he the mantis is having none of that? Trying to have none of that, uh -huh. but clearly outmatched. Uh -huh. A big, uh, relatively speaking, a big bird against a relatively small yeah, this insect. isn't a little brown thingy this is big bruce right and so at one point 
you know, he, he softened him up a little bit and then went in very quickly and just bit him right in the head. And which, then, is, which is what happens during mating, as I understand. Right, for brain the mantis. old switcheroo for the poor mantis. <laughs> How do you like it? <laughs> and then the bird just picked it up and carried it off and presumably fed it to one of its own chicks. Was, so. there, a, was there a great photo there? Yeah, yeah uh-huh. there's this, this photograph of a cardinal standing there and the mantis up on all defense points, like, the, you know, trying to make itself big and scary. We're in the we're in the radio studio here, but Bill's doing great um, hand gestures and arm gestures, <laughs> yeah, mimicking mammoths and the, <laughs> the just, battle I'm, between Big Bruce and a performance and made for radio. <laughs> and it, right. So this is uh, it's going to be in the recorder and Gazette tomorrow that the, he does a great impression of a dying praying mantis. We're going to be back with Bill Danielson <laughs> and with Brian Adams and can continue our conversation. I know I have a couple of questions about birds. We'll be right back. Bye-bye, Blackbird. Well, somebody waits for me. Sugar sweet. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. Find local news and local talk for the Valley. It wasn't necessary, and it probably wasn't even appropriate. On the one hand, I don't want that to sound like I don't support schools. I have a long history of supporting schools, certainly longer than any one of those city councilors. Where the heart of the Pioneer Valley lives. 101.5 and 1400 WHMP. News, information, and the arts. What's cooking at River Valley Co-op? Here's avid eater, grocery shopper, and co-op member Bill Newman. Local farmers are arriving at the co-op every day with summer berries, corn, tomatoes, and watermelon, and endless bounty. At the co-op seafood counter, little neck clams are rolling in. What goes better with corn and tomatoes than sweet, briny little necks? No time to cook today? The co-op makes pizza, sandwiches, burgers, sushi, and smoothies, and they make it all from scratch. River Valley Co-op, wild about local. Everyone is welcome. 20 years ago, we envisioned creating a brighter future for people and planet. Now, PV Squared celebrates a big milestone, two decades of designing, building, and maintaining quality solar projects for homes and businesses in our community. PV Squared is a worker-owned co-op. When you partner with us, you get a team dedicated to the success of your project, from your first meeting to servicing your system down the road. Build the solar right and do business better. It's the co-op difference. Learn more at pvsquared.coop. Wake up, people. You're optimizing every waking hour of your life. From carpooling kids to work to friends and everything in between, you have to get sleep and a bed that can perform as well as you do. Meet the next generation Sleep Number Smart Bed. It effortlessly adjusts to your shape, position, and movements, learning how you sleep so you learn to sleep better night after night. Sleep next level, only from Sleep Number. It's the biggest sale of the year. Save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed, plus special financing ends Monday. See store for details. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. And welcome back to the show. We have the uh, the real pleasure of eavesdropping on a conversation between Brian Adams and Bill Danielson, the columnist, the naturalist, uh, the educator who talks about the world in which we live, especially in this region. Brian? Uh, Bill, I'm curious. What turned you on to nature? Why a naturalist? Why did you choose this? profession as a columnist, as a photographer, as a teacher. You teach high school physics. 
and biology, what was it that sparked that interest in nature? My grandmother on my mother's side of the family was a naturalist for the Hudson Valley Girl Scout Council. And her husband was a very talented scientist also. And they had a habit of bringing in the the orphan animals, like the baby deer and the baby raccoons and the baby foxes. and, And so my mother learned that. And so I learned that. And so when I was a child, uh, it was not uncommon to have like the baby Robin that needed to be saved. Probably didn't need to be saved, but you know, we saved it. And so there is a family portrait of, I must have been seven, six years old, and there is a baby Robin named Butch sitting on my head. And the little kids, all the little kids are together instead of going to JCPenney and getting the family photo. My dad just took it in the living room or something. So we always had little animals, like you catch a snake and you keep it for the summer, or you catch a turtle and you keep it for the summer. Let's go catch frogs. Let's, you know, we were always outside and always doing that kind of stuff. We will encourage our listeners to keep those snakes and frogs and baby robins outside rather than bringing them into their house. Things have changed and we know know that wildlife encounters mean keeping the wildlife outside. Um, I want to talk a little bit about your teaching, okay. because you do teach high school physics and biology. Correct. And one of the challenges of being an educator these days, particularly in the sciences, and the natural sciences, biology, the study of life, how do you get kids away from their screens and interested in getting outdoors and experiencing the wonder of the natural world. That is a very great challenge. And you you aren't successful with everybody. So you try to make it interesting as, as well as you can with the curriculum restraints that you're faced with. But um, here's an example of uh, uh, you catch a snake, right? You put it in a terrarium and you bring it to school and you show it to the kids. Hey, look, we found a snake. And then you go home and you let it go immediately. (laughs) But maybe they never saw a snake up close in person. And they never saw an adult calmly just reach into the cage and pick it up. Or they see the snake recoil a little bit and you say, well, put yourself in the snake's position. What would you do if a giant reached for you? Would you just let it happen or would you back off a little bit? And if they can start to empathize with the animal and put some of their own feelings into that animal, then suddenly it's not as scary and then they can care about it a little bit. I think that's really important. Empathy toward the natural world. Yeah. Empathy toward creatures, the other, other than us. And empathy towards special places, too. Um, I think you have a story about a black rat snake. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Is that right? Yeah. So we'd like to hear that one. Go for it. So I was was in uh, upstate New York, near Poughkeepsie, at the John Burroughs Sanctuary, which is a um, natural heritage site. And I was just tramping through the woods on a hike with my sister, and... This was one of those deals where 
there's no such thing as just going on a hike. I've always got like 82 pounds of camera equipment and tripods and all kinds of junk on my back. He carries that Adirondack seat. I carry my thinking chair, you know. (laughs) And, um, And so I'm just walking along this dirt road and out of the corner of my eye, I was like, what did I just see? So I backed up a little bit and there's this six foot long black rat snake. Oh, six feet. Yeah. And it was about three feet up an oak tree. It was clearly on its way up an oak tree. They're very good climbing snakes. Okay. Uh, scary things here, snakes in trees. Uh, continue. <laughs> right. And um, when it when it saw us see it, I think it had a change of heart and maybe started to turn around back towards the ground where it could make a fast escape. But its defense at the moment was, I'm just going to freeze. And if I don't move, it won't see me and it won't know that I'm here, me being it. So it didn't work. And I set up my camera, but the, the snake never moved. And so I was able to take all kinds of photos of the snake and I had never seen one before and have never seen one since. Poser. Uh, as Right. As um, when I wrote the column for the newspaper, I did get mail from readers who said, oh, I've got one that comes onto my deck all the time. Oh, wow. I've got one climbs up the screen porch all the time. I think you wrote that it's the largest snake we'd encounter here in this region, right? Yes. Yes. Uh, it's six to eight feet long. That's, that's a pretty substantial Snake. That is a real That's a big snake. Uh, we've been talking with Bill Danielson. Bill Danielson is an educator, a professional writer, and nature photographer. He writes the the weekly column for both the Gazette and the Recorder, and now the Berkshire Eagle called "Speaking of Nature." That we really encourage our readers to take a uh, look at. Um, in about thirty seconds that we have left, advice to aspiring photographers. Any any tidbits of pearls of wisdom you'd like to impart to them? Take pictures of things you find interesting and pr- practice. That's really all there is to it. Uh, look at it from different angles, read about it, but get out there and do it and practice. Yeah, whenever we speak with the photographers, they always tell us that what we're doing is freezing a moment. And so in an encounter with, with something in the wild, the beauty of that which is wild, it, it, it's wonderful to freeze that for posterity. And uh, uh, freeze it for posterity and also present it to the general public so that we can have empathy for the other. Because there's a photography does that in such a spectacular and special way. We really thank you for your work because in this era of climate change and cynicism, you write a very positive column um, you don't go to the apocalypse. You don't go to the to that side that is fearful, but you embrace nature and bring that home to us. Bill Danielson, thank you so much. Get takeout, save 30%. Get candles or hit the links, save 30%. Dog grooming, outdoor recreation, burritos, save 30%. The Shop 30 store, full value gift certificates to local restaurants and merchants, plus tickets and events. Just click, print, and save 30% on the stuff you were gonna buy anyway. The Shop 30 store, 
Open right now at whmp.com. Did you know that you can prevent domestic and sexual violence? You can say something. We all can say something. Together, we can do so much. Say Something is the domestic and sexual violence prevention program at Safe Passage. Join a prevention lab to build your skills and find opportunities to say something to prevent violence. Join us and help make your community safe and healthy for everyone. Get more information or sign up for WRSI HD2 Turner's Falls, whmp.com, a Northampton Radio Group station. 